I'm going to uh, start by reading off in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, uh, stand with me. We're going to read the text and then we're going to pray and we're going to jump in. We have been going through the book of 2 If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and stand with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Uh, we're just going to look at verses 1 through 10. Uh, today's sermon should be shorter. Should be. That's the goal. So starting in verse 1. Um, I must go on boasting that there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations to the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on behalf of I will not boast, except of my weakness, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me uh, in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. That it should leave me, but all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. I'm going to pray. Lord, again, be with us this morning as we open your word and, and seek to study. And I pray that uh, more than anything, as we exegete this text together, That you would focus our mind in on Christ and that we would see Christ for who he is and what he's done for us. And that our hearts would overflow with gratitude and overflow with thankfulness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4, you've probably, if you've done any kind of studying in uh, the word before, you've come across this and you've often wondered, what's this third heaven stuff? What's this... What's this going to the third heaven? If, he said, if you can see here. Now remember, he's been boasting about all the things that have happened to him in chapter 11. Whenever he was shipwrecked and he was hungry and he had been beaten and he'd been stoned. And he's going on and he's saying, listen, I am an apostle of Christ. Those false apostles that have come in and said wrong things about me, they, they're not true, true apostles of Christ. I am. And I had all these things happen to me. And instead of saying, I planted all these churches and I've done all these great things. He said, I've been beat up and I've been shipwrecked. So he He lists off things that you wouldn't think, but he's doing that in order to stay humble before the people, but still make the case that he's an apostle. And so uh, he's going to tell them something now that he's never told them before. And so that's why he gets to verse 1. He goes, if I must go on boasting, and I'm not going to talk about my shipwrecks, and I'm not going to talk about being hungry, and I'm not going to talk about all those things I talked about in chapter 11. I'm going to tell you this new thing. And then he goes into this verses 1 through 4 situation where you read that, and you're okay. What is this all about? Is Paul just out of context throwing some kind of random fact in there to the Corinthians and then jumping back out whenever he says in verse, in verse 1, uh, there's nothing to be gained by it, but I'll go on. And he goes, I'm going to go on to visions and revelations. I've actually had experiences that no one really ever has before. Visions and revelations. I don't know if I was in my body or if I was out of my body, if the Lord took me out of my body, but he took me up to what's the third heaven. So how about that? You ever been to the third heaven, Corinthians? I have. As a matter of fact, I even went to paradise. 
That's what he says if you keep looking at it. I know a man in Christ. Now, he is speaking about himself in the third person, but he's talking about himself because verse 7 tells us. He kind of lets the cat out of the bag that it was him in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. And so he's, he's obviously talking about himself because in verse 7 he's talking about me and the revelations I had. So back up to verse 2. He goes, I know this man who has these visions and revelations, this man in Christ, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. You ever been to the third heaven? I don't even know what Paul's talking about, right? I have no clue what he's talking about. But he's saying, I could boast of this amazing experience that I had just to make sure you understand that I'm an apostle and that those false apostles aren't. But I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. But I did go to paradise, by the way. I mean, he keeps reading, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. And I know this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And when he was in the third heaven, when he was in the paradise, whatever all that means, there's lots of, I mean, I, I read a lot of stuff from commentators this week about all of what it could mean. And in the end, the summation was, but we don't know what it means. And I think that's exactly right. He had some kind of experience where he was with God in some way. That's what we know. <laughs> and the things that he heard, he's not allowed to say. Look what he says there at the end of uh, verse 4. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. So as weird as this seems, it does, verses 1 through 4, this kind of strange little thing that he says in verses 1 through 4, it is not out of place. I mean, it, it's supposed to be there. To help us see what follows in verse 5 through 10. In verses 5 through 10, Paul is going to give um, probably some of the deepest writings on why we suffer. He's going to pour out his heart to the Corinthian church and to us, therefore, and help us understand whenever you suffer for Christ, here are some of the most profound reasons why God puts his believing uh, saints, his sons and daughters, through suffering. And he explains to us in verses 5 through 10 why we suffer. And you're like, okay, but why is verses 1 through 4 there? Um, Verses 1 through 4 there is not out of context. It is exactly where it's supposed to be. In the midst of everything that Paul's been trying to write about, especially in the way that the Corinthians church has treated him, he does this little short teaching on verses 5 through 10 in suffering. And he, of course, spoke of suffering in the previous section where he had been shipwrecked, where he had been hungry, etc. But in this section, in verses 5 through 10 especially, is perhaps some of the most emotionally charged passage that he writes regarding suffering in all of the Bible. Because he's going to tell us some of the reasons why God allows us to suffer. And so verses 1 through 4 actually fits because um, as he's writing in verses 1 through 4, he's um, telling us like, I could, Corinthians, you've caused me, Corinthians, to suffer a lot because you have believed these false apostles when they came in. And I could prove my apostleship by even letting you know what happened to me, but I'm not going to go into the third heaven thing. And so it's in the context of the fact that he's been suffering. Now, here's a question that I think is important for us to realize. When we read verses 1 through 4 regarding these kinds of visions and revelations that we should just know about, because it's easy for us to see that and say, well, I want to have visions and revelations like Paul. Should I seek those kinds of things as well? Um, I would say, no, we shouldn't necessarily seek those things, um, especially um, in the place of the Bible. We have something more sure than visions of revelations, and namely, it is the Word of God. And so if you really want to seek 
Christ. You don't need to seek him in visions and revelations. Instead, you should seek him in the Bible. Now, why would I say that? Um, Paul doesn't share this, uh, what he saw. He just says, the things that I saw, or the things that I heard, I can't even utter to you. So he doesn't even tell us what it was. Because um, he knows it's not going to benefit the church. It won't be profitable for Corinth to hear it. It won't be comprehensible because it says it's not even things that are to be understood. And further, it won't be verifiable. So whatever he says, there's no way to know for sure that what he's saying is, is absolutely 100% true. Because it's unverifiable because it's not in the word. So what is profitable is scripture. And he tells us that. Scripture is profitable if you read 2 Timothy chapter 3. And this is why in Acts chapter 20, whenever he's with the Ephesian elders and he's given them advice to go and be pastors now of the church of Ephesus that Paul planted forever. Like he said, I'm sending you to go plant. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, what is it that he, he tells them to make sure that they do? In Acts chapter 32, this is what he said. He doesn't, um, he doesn't say, now go try to have revelations and visions. Instead, he tells them in, in verse 32, and now I commend to you, uh, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. He commends the word to them. This is why um, in Peter, whenever he literally was on the Mount of Transfiguration and literally heard the voice of God and saw the transfiguration of Jesus, in 2 Peter 1.21 said, there's something more sure than that. I heard the voice that was born from heaven. I saw the transfigured Christ, and I saw those things. And, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big vision and revelation. But Peter says, but there's something more sure than that, the Bible. Second, that's 2 Peter one twenty one. As a matter of fact, Paul, he says in this particular set of verses, in verse 1, he goes, I know a man who 14 years ago, so that means whenever Paul, 14 years ago, had this vision, later on he went and planted the church at Corinth after he had that vision. And you know what he did with them? The word, and he's preached to them the gospel, and that's it. And then 14 years later, after he had the vision, he's standing before him writing this letter. And you know what? He, when he planted the church, he didn't mention this vision because these things are in the end not necessarily the most comprehensible verifiable, etc. And so we don't necessarily have to have these things. So why does Paul mention the third heaven in this context? Why does he mention it in this context? Because two reasons primarily. False apostles are trying to discredit Paul and say that he's not an apostle. Paul wants them to understand that he is, and only apostles would have this kind of third heaven paradise experience. And he's wanting to help them see I am an apostle, and you should listen to me. And so if I must go on boasting, that's what he says in verse 1, and there's nothing to be gained by it. I've already talked about all my sufferings. I'll even say this one last thing. I'm not going to tell you what I heard, but I will tell you this even happened to me. But it's not profitable. It's not verifiable, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He's just trying to continually help the Corinthians see that he's uh, an apostle to be listened to. And the next, Paul's experience suffering and persecution. Here's the next reason why he does it. It's because he's experienced suffering and persecution at the hand of the false apostles whenever they down-talked him in front of the Corinthian church. And Jesus was so kind to remind him, in the midst of all of this suffering that you've experienced, Paul, he listed in, verse, in chapter 11, and in the midst of what we kind of read in the whole context of 2 Corinthians, Jesus was very kind to him to say, um, all these kinds of sufferings that you're going to experience, Paul, as a missionary of me, before any of that happens, and as that's happening, 
I'm going to take you up to the third heaven. I'm going to take you up to paradise. I'm going to give you a glimpse of Christ so that that particular thing will be something that will sustain you through all the terrible trials that you're going to go through. And you're going to remember this amazing uh, experience you had with me. And so when you write, these light and momentary afflictions are not worth compared to what we have whenever we come to heaven. That's going to be something that's real to you. And so this, this glimpse of heaven that he has, Christ was kind enough to give it to him. And these wonders and treasures help Paul press on during all the persecutions he experiences in life. I think that's why he has this particular thing. Um, as J, J. Mack says, Having been given a glimpse, that's John MacArthur, having been given a glimpse of heaven that awaited him, he could face the most relentless and severe suffering that dogged every single day of his life. That's why he had this. And we haven't had these things, likely, um, but that's okay. We, we have the word. It's more sure. That's what they tell us. Uh, that's what Peter tells us. That's what Paul tells us. Uh, so now we've come into the text after we have that kind of uh, introduction of verses 1 through 4 into verse 5. And he's going to give us in verses 5 through 10 four reasons why God allows believers to suffer. And so suffering is what this text is about. Um, why would I say that the text is about suffering? Because he tells us right there in verse 10, as he um, gives us the summation statement of everything he's been talking about in verses 1 through 10, he tells us, if you look at verse 10, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So he's, he's talking about all these things that are happening to him when he's suffering. And he said, because then I'm weak, and when I'm weak, Christ is strong. So I'm content with sufferings. And so this whole context here is about suffering. So before Paul says he's content with sufferings, he's going to give us four reasons about why God allows these sufferings in our life. And we should be sure that whenever we read this, um, this is not just for Paul. This is also for us, just to give us a couple uh, texts of Scripture that help you and I want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, then we are promised persecution. If, if we don't want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we're not promised persecution. But if we want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, it tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the level of persecution that you and I will receive is different. Depending on the year we live from the last 2,000 years, depending on the country we live the last 2,000 years. But it's still going to happen if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus. We will be persecuted. And when that happens, you can think, this is awful. Why is this happening? Or you can respond by saying, this is a gift of grace to be suffering. Now, why would you in the world would you ever think suffering is a gift? Because the Bible tells us that. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, this is what Paul says. Uh, now, uh, most, especially in the Reform camp, would say, uh, the gift of faith is a gift of God. If you've been given the gift of faith and you have been saved, that is a gift of God. In Philippians 1.29, he says, not only is the gift of faith, your salvation, a gift from God, but suffering is a gift from God. Philippians 1, verse 29. For it has been granted, this is the same kind of thought as gifted, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that not only that you should believe, there it is, that the gift of faith is granted to us, gifted to us in him, but also that you should suffer for his sake. It's been granted, it's been gifted to you that you should suffer for the sake of Christ. You're like, well, that sounds like a, 
a gift that I didn't ask for. Um, I don't get it. Well, it is good. It is good. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that whenever we suffer for him, that we're literally blessed. In the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 10, Jesus says it this way. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for those of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So on Christ's account. When it happens for the purpose of bringing glory to Christ or because you're living for Christ, then we're blessed. And he tells us even further, when that happens, don't be somber. Don't be sad. Don't dread it. Instead, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven because they persecuted the prophets that were before you and they're going to persecute you as well. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So since we've set the context that when suffering happens, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's not a like God's mad at us, instead it's a gift. It's not because we're... Um, not living a godly life is because we are living a godly life. And it's not because we should be, you know, wise, despairing, but it's also supposed to be because we're rejoicing and this, we're glad this has happened. Um, whenever we read reasons why God causes these things, these four reasons we're going to see in the text, it shouldn't cause us to be sad, but instead we, it should give us some of the answers that we seek for because every person asks this question. Why is this happening to me, God? Now, When I say suffering, I want to make sure you hear what I'm saying. I'm saying suffering for the sake of Christ. There's all kinds of sufferings in this world. And I'm not talking about sufferings in this particular context that we have brought on to ourselves through sin. I'm not talking about that. There's answers for that, and I'm happy to have that another time. I'm talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. When you are doing the work of Jesus and you receive suffering, here's reasons why. Here's reasons why. Verse 5. On behalf of this man, he's talking about himself, in the third person, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Now here he's just still trying to lay the groundwork of the fact that boasting is ridiculous, but he's going to do it, uh, but he's kind of doing it as like a third person, and he realizes that it's all just kind of foolishness, but he's wanting the Corinthians to understand that he has the right to say what he has to say. But then we get to the real reason, right? Then he's going to tell us the reason. But if I refrain from it, here it is, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Now remember, the whole context is worship. And so what he, he do it, but I want to make sure that while this is happening, um, I'm going to uh, realize that so that no one may think more of me than he sees from me or hears from me. So one of the reasons why in the midst of all this suffering that God's allowing is he's helping Paul realize that he doesn't want people to think more of Paul than they do of God. And so that's, that's point, uh, reason number one. You can go ahead and put it up. God allows us to suffer so that no one will think more of us than they do of Christ. It's a, it's a way to keep us humble. It's a way to keep us humble. That we shouldn't want people to think more of uh, our, us than they do of Christ. Adversity and suffering. Whenever we're walking through life, adversity and suffering, when it comes our way, will show our, our true spiritual character. 
how we react whenever adversity or suffering for Christ comes our way, our reaction puts on display our true spiritual character. And what we should want in those moments is not that everybody thinks we're awesome, but instead everybody thinks that Christ is awesome. And so this happens so they would not think more of us than they do of Christ. This is terrifyingly in the end, how we respond to suffering for Christ matters. How do you respond for Christ in the midst of suffering? Think about it. How do you respond? Do you just run away from it so that it never happens? How do you respond in the midst of suffering? Do you want to receive the glory or do you want Christ to receive the glory? Um, As Paul said in verses 1 through 4, he self-reports of this instance when he went to verse 7. And this happens 14 years beforehand. Um, He says, uh, all this happened to me before I even came to you. And I could have tried to receive glory when I came to you and said, hey, I went to the third heaven. But he doesn't even bring it up. Which means, um, just as a side note, um, the word is what changes. When Paul went to Corinth... And he, he went there to plant the church. He didn't go with fanciful stories of visions and revelations. He went with the word. And he planted the church in Corinth with the word. Which is the same thing that we should do. Paul doesn't do anything besides give them the gospel. That's what we should do. Now, back to uh, why we should understand Christ should receive more glory than us. Paul's refrained from telling them all these things. But it's because he doesn't want to boast. He doesn't want people to think more highly of him than they do of Christ. So how is this related to suffering? How is this related to suffering? Because refraining to tell them this story all the way up until now has caused the false apostles to besmirch Paul's good name. And so because he refrained from it, he suffered in the, at the hands of the Corinthians. Not boasting about this special visit to the third heaven, whatever that means, um, ended up giving the Corinthians doubt and to who Paul was, and that he was actually an apostle. And this doubt of the Corinthians brought this pos- the apostle Paul a huge measure of pain and suffering because he knew that the, the Corinthians didn't believe him and didn't believe in his ministry, and his ministry was invalidated in, in the eyes of the Corinthians because of these false apostles. And so not boasting about how awesome things went for him actually brought about suffering. And so Paul could wonder, why did God all, allow all this to happen? But Paul tells us one of the reasons here that he allows it to happen is that no one may think more of me um, than what he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, whenever I went there, I said things and they saw things about me. I said things about Christ and they saw that I was humble in spirit and that's all that I want them to know about me. I don't want them to think anything more about me than that, that I told them about Christ and that I tried to remain humble as a servant of Christ. That's all I want them to know. And so we don't want to miss this truth. God allowed Paul to suffer because God will not share his glory with anyone else. Glory, But only Christ is worthy of glory. God did not want anyone to think more of Paul than just what they saw and they heard of him. Now this is important because um, John Piper goes into this in one of, his, um, one of his books and sermons when he talks about what's the definition of love. Because we can have an American definition of love to where we think the definition of love is that somebody makes much of us. This is what Piper says. Um, Have you taken the American definition of love, which is being made much of, and so twisted God to fit that definition so that now the only way you can feel loved by God is if he makes much of you. 
When in fact, the love of God is so working as to change you so that instead of him making much of you, the real definition of love for God is that you start enjoying making much of him forever and ever. And that is the end of our quest. He goes on to say it this way. You and I are being, in America, are being tricked, many of us, into thinking that the satisfying thing into life is to be made much of. If I could just get some people to clap for me and like me and to approve of me, to give me praise or to raise me up or to give me an advancement, if I could just get someone to start paying attention to me, then I would be so satisfied. You wouldn't. I promise you, you wouldn't. This is Piper. In the name of Jesus Christ Almighty, you wouldn't. You will be satisfied when you forget about yourself and you are swallowed up in Jesus Christ and he becomes your treasure and he becomes your delight and what you cherish and what you value and what you spend the rest of your eternity growing and your capacity to see and savor, to know and delight in Christ forever and ever and it will get better and better and better. That is real love. It's not God making much of us, but instead us forgetting ourselves and God inviting us in in the amazing process of making much of him. That's what Paul's learning here in the midst of suffering. That it's not about us at all. It's not about us receiving glory. And we should never want anybody to think more of us than they do of Christ. And so um, we shouldn't want people to think more highly of us. And Paul could think that. Paul could say, hey, I went to the third heaven, think a lot of me. Which is why he doesn't mention it even up until this particular moment. And that's only to try to help them see that he's actually an apostle that should be listened to. Um, And this daily walk that he has uh, as an apostle is deeply desiring to tell the Corinthians to repent and come back to Christ. So it's more important that people prize Christ over us. That's the first reason why we're suffering. That we experience suffering is so that people will think more of Christ than they do of us. Now, I I began the service with the call to worship with reading the crucifixion of Christ just to help us see, are we we any better than our master? No servant is better than his master. And what did they do to him? What should we expect they do to us? That's number one. Number two. Um, it's really easy to see. It's in number seven, and it bookends number seven. Look at number, verse seven. So to keep me from being conceited, and then if you look at the very end of verse seven, to keep me from becoming conceited. <laughs> so he, he says it twice right there in verse seven, bookending it on both sides just to make sure we don't miss it. So number two, you can go ahead and put it up. God allows suffering to keep us from being spiritually conceited. Let's read verse seven. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now, that means um, God allowed me to have a thorn, or God allowed me to see these visions and revelations. And I could have been like, yay, this is awesome. But after he let me see those revelations, um, these amazing things about third heaven, after it was over, he didn't want me to be super spiritually conceited like, hey, hey, I went to the third heaven. So after he gave me this whole experience, then he gave me a thorn. He said, all right, I'm going to let you see great things, but you could be like super big-headed and say, I went to third heaven, how about you? So that I would never be spiritually conceited. After I got to see everything, he put the thorn in the flesh to me and said, that's the reminder 
so that you don't become spiritually conceited that I'll let you see the, the visions in heavens. That's what verse 7 is telling us. So that to, I don't become conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. So he let me see these great things, but it came with a price, namely the thorn in the flesh. And you've probably heard about Paul's thorn in the flesh if you read the Bible for any time. And the same thing with the third heaven. All the commentators say it could be this, it could be that, it could be physical disabilities, which most people are like, I don't think it's physical disabilities. I mean, he, he trekked around for three missionary journeys back in the first century, which is tough. He probably was a pretty strong dude. So it probably wasn't physical. Maybe it was, as he finishes in chapter 11, he goes, on top of all these things, I have these anxiety for the churches. So it could just be the thorn in the flesh that he just has deep depression and anxiety. Maybe it's that. One commentator said, the thorn in the flesh is literally the Corinthians. It's the Corinthians doubting him. And that's the big thorn in the flesh. Maybe it's that. In the end, as all commentators say, we don't know what it is. But we do know that it was given to him so that he wouldn't become spiritually conceited. This thorn, by the way, skoplos in the, in the Greek, skoplos, it's just been translated for us from uh, in, in English for us for a long time as thorn. It's not thorn. It's stake. So thorn just, you know, I got a little splinter in my finger and it's kind of annoying. Every time I hit it, it bothers me. That's not what it is. Think of a big wooden stake, you know, the kind you have to kill vampires. Those aren't real. But it's like one of those things. I've got a huge stake stuck in me, a messenger from Satan reminding me continually to not be conceited. I have this ongoing, nagging messenger of, of Satan stake in the flesh, keeping me from being conceited. And it all is because he doesn't want Paul to be prideful or spiritually conceited. He wants him to be humble. And it happens because he was given the incredible opportunity to see these revelations. Uh, one commentator, Garland, says it this way, Over elation from the incredible experience of being allowed entry up into paradise, Paul could easily have been led into over such inflation of his ego so that he feels superior over all others and blessed because of these supernatural visions. To prevent such spiritual pride from welling up, Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. A scolops or scolops or whatever it is, and it's a stake, not indicating that it was small, but instead indicating that it was large, meaning it sticks deeply into the flesh and it cannot be extracted easily. We don't know what it was, but we do know that God stuck it there. Um, you could say, wait, 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 it says a messenger from Satan, right? But if you read in verse 8, uh, who does he go to, right? Does he go to Satan and say, take it out from me, Satan? No. It says, I pled with the Lord to take it away. So ultimately, ultimately, just like Job 1, all things come from God. And so God put it there so that he would not become spiritually conceited. It means God doesn't want us to become spiritually conceited. So we suffer so that we don't become spiritually conceited. Suffering for the name of Christ comes our way so that we stay humble. So why is it that you suffer for Christ? Why is it that you suffer? One, because Christ gets all the glory, not you. Two, because you, God wants you to stay humble. And so we should receive it with joy and humility. Next one, verse 8. He says this, three times that it should leave me. Now, this is really interesting, right? 
the stake comes, suffering is happening, calamities are happening to him, and what does he do? Go ahead and put up number three. God allows us to suffer so that we draw near to him. Spurgeon says it this way, anything is blessed. Any, I'm sorry, anything is a blessing that makes us pray. The thorn drove Paul to his knees. As soon as the suffering happened, what did Paul do? It says, three times I pleaded with the Lord. Now, three times could be literally three times, or it could be kind of like the spiritual number three, and we know it's like, you know, the perfect number, and so I just never stopped asking, and he, he, never, he never took it away. Um, but the point is, uh, in the midst of this suffering, it caused him to draw near to God. So why does suffering happen to you for Christ? Is because God wants you nearer to him. He wants you to seek him out in prayer and through his word. You might be experiencing suffering one day or even now because the Lord is saying, come, come closer to me. Come under the shadow of my wing. Feel the protection and the comfort that only I can give. And so suffering can happen because he wants you closer. Just like Jesus in Gethsemane when he suffered, he sought the Lord in prayer. Paul sought the Lord in prayer whenever he was suffering. He knew the only place that he could go was the feet of the Father, and that's where he went. J. Max says, the most blessed place a believer can be is to draw near to God in the intensity of pain. The most blessed place we can be is when we draw near to God. So where do you go in the midst of suffering and pain? Where's your first place to go? Sports, internet, Facebook, drink, family, or Jesus? Where's your go-to place? Hopefully it's not any of those things I said besides Jesus. He is the place that we should go. A small side note on teaching on time and prayer provided by John Calvin. Um, if I've not convinced you that you should go to God in prayer when you're suffering, um, hopefully I will here. Uh, hopefully God has done it through his word, not me. But if you still aren't convinced, you should know something about prayer. You should know this. Um, consider this. Paul went to the Lord and pleaded with him three times. Remove this thing from me. Answer, request denied. Sorry, you're not getting it. That's interesting, right? That's interesting. Something that we should know about prayer is this. Asking does not mean that your request will be given. And that's might be the best thing. That might be the best thing. Calvin writes it this way. He explains that there are two kinds of answers to prayer. We ask without qualification for those things about which we have sure promise, such as the perfecting of God's kingdom and the hallowing of his name, the forgiveness of sins, and everything profitable to us. But when we imagine that God's kingdom can indeed must be furthered in such and such a way, or that this is or that is necessary for the hallowing of his name, we're often mistaken, just as in the same way we're often deluded as to what, in fact, tends to our own welfare. We can ask with full confidence for what we certainly promise to us, but we cannot prescribe the means. So we can ask for God to do the ends, the sure promised ends that are said in his Bible, like people would get saved, cause that to happen, persevere me to the end, Lord. He, there's these things that are the ends, but we can also pray for the means, and I would like for that to happen this way, 
but we're not promised the means, we're promised the ends. So when Paul says, remove this from me, request denied. But the end is, you're still going to draw near to me. That's what, what he's trying to help us understand. God may grant the end that we ask for in prayer, but God may use a means that we do not desire. And he has absolute right to do it. This means that God's answer for Paul was not to take it away. And God's answer was actually better. It was better that Paul keep it. It was a richer endowment of strength that Paul was given to overcome his weakness. And so that's why it was better. I'm not taking away the thorn because now that you're weak, you have to have the power of Christ on you. And that's better than just taking away the thorn and you don't have the power of Christ resting on you. You should have the power of Christ resting on you in the middle of this stake in the flesh. And that's actually better for you. And so this response from God was far greater and far more profound than Paul knew to ask. Paul didn't at, say, oh, it's so great that I'm weak. Make me stronger and perfect me in the power of the Lord. Don't take away the stake. Because he couldn't see that. He said, take it away. This is, this is unbearable. And God said, no, I'm not taking it away. But the whole point, before we get ahead of ourselves, is um, God allows us to suffer so that we'll draw near to him. F.F. Bruce, his prayer was indeed answered not by deliverance from the affliction, but by the receiving of the necessary grace to bear the thorn, to bear the stake. God answered it by saying, here's grace, which brings me into my last one. You can read it right there in verse 9. And he said to me, I'm not going to take it away, but my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Number four, God allows us to suffer so that we display his grace to others and we have his power perfected in us personally. We experience suffering so that his grace is put on display to others. And it's important that display is public to people, that they see the power of grace and also that his power is perfected in us. Display his grace, have his power perfected in us. We'll look at display as grace first. When God did not answer Paul's thorn, it was very likely and very much known by the Corinthians. Paul, uh, as he's writing this in the, to the Corinthians, um, it's, it's pretty likely that the Corinthians knew what this, this unnamed stake in the flesh was. It's probably, they did know what it was. We don't know what it was, but they did. And they know that God didn't answer his prayer. He's, I, I asked for God, to, but he didn't. And they likely knew what it was. And when Paul didn't get his pr- prayer answered, just like he thought, And the answer was no. And the answer is, actually, here's the grace to bear the thorn. The people saw, oh, Paul's going to have to have grace here. Jesus' grace is going to be put on display through Paul to the Corinthians. And that's a good thing, not just for Paul, but also for the Corinthians to see. It was, Paul was put on display as a trophy of grace for the Corinthians to see. Which means in the midst of your suffering, if the Lord doesn't remove that suffering, you are not a victim. Instead, you are now a trophy of grace put on display for the world to see that Christ is enough for you in the midst of suffering. And so you rejoice in that grace. What kind of pain in life that happens to you that Christ's grace is not sufficient? What terrible thing happens in your life where you can say, the grace of Christ is not sufficient here? The answer is none. The answer is nothing. God wanted everyone to know this, and he wanted them to see it in the life of Paul. 
we are to realize that we are we should realize that we are allowed to suffer in front of others so that they can know that God's grace is enough. We get the opportunity to put on display the amazing grace of God in our lives. And when we go through it, we have to realize that Jesus is enough. I've read this before, but I want to read it one more time. Um, this is a man who had the opportunity to put on display the grace of God in the midst of suffering. His friend whispered to him, Thomas. The friend lowered his voice so he couldn't be heard by the God. Thomas, I have to ask you for this favor. I need to know. I need to know if the others say, what the others say about the grace of God is true. Thomas, I need to know if it's true. Tomorrow, Thomas, when they burn you at the stake, if the pain is tolerable and your mind is still at peace when they do it, lift your hands above your head. I need to know if God's grace is enough. Do it right before you die, Thomas. I have to know. Thomas looked at his friend and said, I will. The next morning, Thomas Halker was bound to the stake and the fire was lit. The fire burned a long time, but Thomas Halker remained motionless. His skin was burnt to a crisp and his fingers were gone and everybody watching just supposed he was dead. Suddenly and miraculously, Thomas Halker lifted up his hands, still on fire over his head. He reached them up to the living God and then with great rejoicing, clapped them together three times for his friend. The people there broke into shouts of praise and applause. And Thomas Halker's friend had his answer. My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes to you in its own weakness. It was the case of Christ's strength moving in my own weakness now. I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I got, the stronger I become. This is what Paul is teaching us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verses 9 and 10. We are displays of his grace in the midst of suffering. And also, we are having his power perfecting us. God not only wants us to put his grace on display to show that it's sufficient, but he also wants his power in us to make us strong. Understand what Paul is saying. He's not wanting us to be strong in and of ourselves. He's wanting us to have the power of Christ rest on us that makes us strong. He wants us to see that we're weak He wants us to see that we are terribly weak and that we boast in that weakness because when we do that, then we realize the power of of Christ comes on us and that's what makes us strong. So we boast in weakness because his power is made perfect in weakness. That's what he says. I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ rests on me for the sake of Christ. I'm content with this weakness because then that's when his power is made perfect, horribly weak. And then that's when he is strong. No one in the kingdom of God is too weak to experience God's power. But many are too confident in their own strength. That's what John MacArthur says. No one in the kingdom of God is too weak to experience God's power. That's when it happens. Don't be confident. Many people are too confident in their own strength. So don't be confident in your own strength and power. Instead, Realize your weakness and realize that's when God makes us powerful. So if you're, if you're a math person, there's like three ways you can think about it. I wish I had it on the screen. I should have put it. If we have our power plus nothing 
that's self-righteous power. That's no good. Our power plus nothing equals self-righteous power. We don't want that. Or there's our power plus Christ's power, and that shared glory and power, that's no good. Lastly, it's this. Our weakness plus Christ's power, that equals perfect power. That's what we want. Our weakness plus Christ's power is equals perfect power. That's the way that we are to live. That's the way that we are to live. So weakness becomes the vehicle of God's grace. Weakness becomes the vehicle of God's grace and God's power. And it's where we is most fully manifested to ourselves and to others is whenever we're weak. So stay weak. You know, you hear the little saying, stay strong. No, stay weak. Because that's when Christ's power is shown through us. And then he concludes for us in verse 10. So for the sake of Christ then. So not for my glory, but for Christ's glory then. I am content. This content means um, about my weaknesses, my insults, my hardships, my persecutions. This means when people think of clever ways to make your faith and lifestyle look stupid or weird or inconsistent. That's what insults are. Or hardships, when circumstances are forced upon you and there's a reversal of things that you wish could happen. And it could refer to any situation where you feel trapped and you have pain. Or persecutions, wounds and abuses, or painful circumstances, or acts of prejudice, or exploitation for people on you specifically because of your Christian faith. That's persecutions. Or calamities, when pressure or crushing or being weighed down of any kind of circumstance overcomes you and causes great stress. These are the calamities. When those things happen, he's saying, I am super happy about it. I am content. I am super happy with these particular things. For when I'm weak, that's when I am strong. For the sake of Christ, because Christ died on the cross for me to forgive me of my sin, to erase my shame... Now I am happy with being weak and insulted and enduring these hardships. When he's weak, then I'm strong. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you've given it to us, and I pray that you would use it to uh, continually mold us through the midst of suffering. Even though it's rough and tough and terrible sometimes, help us rejoice in it and not be sad because we know that ultimately you get the glory, not us, from it. And that it causes us to draw near to you and become more like you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this difficult truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.